Nehemiah, where we are, chapter 2. Take out your Bibles, open them up. If you don't have a Bible with you tonight, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. Nehemiah, chapter 2. A couple of weeks ago, we began our study in the, in the book of Nehemiah, and as I mentioned at that time, chronologically, as we look through history, Nehemiah is actually the last book chronologically in the Old Testament. Obviously not the last book of the Old Testament, as we still have either one more history book that's out of order. Um, and then we get into the poetic books and then the prophecy books, you know, and, and the prophets, major and minor prophets, before we get to the New Testament. But chronologically, Nehemiah takes place at the end of the Old Testament period. And then there's the time of of silence, and then the New Testament begins. And we're looking at this time frame now, this, this life, this man, Nehemiah, an incredible leader that God raised up. And one of the points that I made last time that's important to reiterate is Nehemiah was just a normal guy. He was, he was just, like, just like you and I. He was, he was a man who loved God, he was a man who loved the things of God, he was, but he had, he had a job. He was the, as we'll see, we see the cupbearer to the king at the end of chapter one. There was nothing about Nehemiah other than the fact that he loved God and was willing to be used by God that set him apart from, from anybody else. God had him positioned uniquely where he was. But Nehemiah was just a, a man like, like you and I. He was somebody that could say, you know, I, I, here I am, Lord. And it's important that we understand that because there's so many lessons that we can learn going through the book of Nehemiah. And we can place ourselves in those and say, you know what? I want to be used by God. And I want to, I wanna, if, I, if I have a heart that's for God and desire to be used by God, we can be used by God. And we see here's a man who simply had a heart who had a, had a concern for the things of God, had a concern for the people of God. And we looked at that last time when his brother returned from Jerusalem. He asked how things are there. And the report that he heard burdened his heart because the walls still had not been rebuilt. And because of that, the city was still not even a city, really. The temple had been rebuilt and the sacrifices had started up again. But but the, the city, the walls had not been rebuilt, susceptible to attack and, and so many other things. And Nehemiah was burdened by that. And his, he responded with, with that burden to go before the Lord in prayer. And we discussed that last time, the importance of it, that he spent four months praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. And we talked about that, how difficult sometimes it is to wait on God. We get something that's placed on our heart and a desire, and we want to move right away and jump forward. But Nehemiah knew that he needed to wait, and he needed to pray for the right time. And as he did that, God was no doubt preparing Nehemiah's heart, as we mentioned last time also, pray, preparing Artaxerxes' heart, the king's heart, for what was next. And we see, as we look at this in verse 11 of chapter 1, to kind of bring into this, this is a prayer. He's been praying day and night, but it changes in verse 11. It says, O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who note delight to revere your name. We hold you whole in, 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 in reverence. You are holy, almighty God. And make your servant successful, note, today. Something, there's something about today in this as, as, as his prayer changes. There's something special about today. Make your servant successful today 
and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. He tells us this man, we get an idea now, grant me compassion in front of the king. And without going any further than that, we might say, well, what is he going to need that for? I mean, if he's the cupbearer, he's close to the king. There is very good evidence looking historically through that, that position that it wasn't just some, some run-of-the-mill slave. He was very close to the king. He spent a lot of time in the presence of the king. He overheard top, top things going on all of the time. He had, he had the ear of the king, unlike most other people, because he was always there. The king wanted to eat or drink anything. Guess who tasted it first? Nehemiah just to make sure that there wasn't anything wrong with it. So he is always around the king, very, very influential, no doubt, probably even as he's talking with the king. But he says, grant me compassion before him. Now, it's hard to move past this because when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king, Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Here we're getting into this day that he's talking about in verse 11, and this is not just an ordinary day. Um, we, we, can, we can date this day very specifically. It tells us it came about in the ninth month of the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes began his reign in July of 465 BC. That's a historical fact. Now, the 20th year of his reign would then begin June of 446 B.C., okay? If you note-takers want this afterwards, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown again. But the, 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 bear with me in this, because nine months later, the month of Nisan would take place in the 20th year of his reign. And that's where we find ourselves here, the 20th year. Now, if the day itself is not mentioned, if it doesn't say that in the 25th day of the, 20th, of the month of Nisan in the 20th year, Hebrew literature historically means that's the first day of that month, if it's not, if it's not mentioned. So if we look at the first of Nisan in 445 BC, that historically is dated, lunar calendars, look at all of this kind of stuff, March 14th, 445 BC. Now, why am I making such a big deal about that date? Because it's an extremely important date. How many of you are familiar with the 70 weeks of Daniel? A handful. Okay, well, those of you who are familiar, we're going to get a little brush up then. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. From, ne from Nehemiah, you're going to want to go past the Psalms, Proverbs, keep on going, get into the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, keep going. You'll get to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel, if, we, if you read the first part of chapter 9, he's been praying. Very similar prayer as you will, if you read through that, to an ex expanded version of it of the prayer that Nehemiah was having, even the, the humble heart, you know, forgive our sin. We have sinned against you and, and a humble heart before God. And it tells us that the angel Gabriel appears and gives, gives Daniel an answer to his prayer, but an answer that goes way beyond what he was praying or asking for, giving him way more than what he was thinking the response would be. And if we pick up now in verse 24, I want to read through 
verse, to verse 27, and then we'll come back and look at this. Seventy weeks have been declared for your people and your holy city. Now, first, just real quickly, stop right there. Your people. Who would your people be? The Jews. He's speaking to Daniel, a Jew. And your holy city, Jerusalem. And that plays out in the whole sequence of things. We won't go into great detail with that. We don't have time tonight to do that. But your people, the Jewish people, your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built up again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out to the one who makes desolate. I clear everything up? Okay. Daniel is given a, pro a prophetic word from Gabriel. And it's interesting when we look at prophecy, when we look at things in the future, isn't it interesting that as we move along in time and as we get closer to something, it's clearer and easier to see and to understand? And some things that you, know, that you hear that, that are, are explained, you might not understand until later. I mean, there's so many things that are in the Bible when it speaks of future events. And I, even... Even when it talks of, of how, how word will travel or how there will be one world currency or all of those types of things. A couple hundred years ago, you think anybody believed that was possible? Did you think that 50 years ago, you'd be able to find out instantly what's happening around the world just by on your phone? You want an answer to something? You would go to your, 50 years ago, you'd have to look it up on your encyclopedia, right? Now you just say, okay, Google, right? I mean, and, and so as, as, as you move forward and as we look through this, it's when we look at prophecy, because there's many people that are very skeptical about this. But again, this is, this is, this is really cool. First of all, it's important to understand what weeks mean. The, the Hebrew word there is used, it is the word heptad. And heptad does not mean a week like you and I would think of a week. When we think of a week, we think of a number of days. But how many days? Seven. And that's the important thing. A heptad is a measure of seven. It could be seven days. It could be seven weeks. It could be seven years. It's a period of something, something of seven. And so Bible scholars agree that the weeks are periods of seven years. So 70 periods of seven years have been determined for Israel, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem. Okay? 
Now, skipping down to verse 25, it says, so you are to know and discern. You're supposed to understand this. You're supposed to know this, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Quick math lesson, seven plus 62 is 69, okay? Come back to that in a moment. You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That is why the date we're talking about tonight is so important. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now hold on a second. Those of you who have been following along as we've studied through Ezra and up to this point now in Nehemiah, how many decrees have been given by kings to go back to Israel and, and rebuild and to do some things? I think we're up to number at least three, maybe four right now, right? Remember Cyrus gave the initial decree to, to, to go back, to, to go back and, and, and rebuild and to get things started and to resettle. And, and, and they did that back then. They, they, they followed that decree, but they did not rebuild everything. And then they gave the, the message now when Ezra, we saw that, where the decree was given to Ezra to go back and rebuild the temple. But as we mentioned now at the beginning, Nehemiah gets word that there's still destruction in Israel. The wall hasn't been rebuilt. The city is still not Jerusalem. There are people living there. The temple is there, but the wall has not been rebuilt, and, the, and there, there, it has not been restored. So from, that is why this date is the important date, the issued of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So we've established the date, March 4, 14th, 445 B.C. Now back to the 69 weeks. 69 periods of seven weeks, seven years. That's 49 years plus 62 weeks, 434 years. You get 483 years to do the math there. 69 weeks, 69 times 7, 483. Now, not using our calendar of 365 days, but to use the calendar that they used back then, the Babylonian calendar as well as the Hebrew calendar, had 360 days. And they had to make, just like we have leap year adjustments, they had to make adjustments every once in a while so that things balanced out. But when you add all of that together, and there was a really smart guy, I'd love to tell you I did this this afternoon, I didn't. A really smart guy named Sir Robert Anderson did all of those calculations, went back and checked all of the ancient calendars and the lunar calendars and all this kind of stuff. You come up with 173,880 days. From March 14th, 445 BC, you do that math, you come to the date, April 6th, 32 AD. So what? What's April 6th, 32 AD? I'm glad you asked. Luke chapter 19 tells us what happens on April 6th, 32 AD. Jesus told a couple of his disciples to go and get a donkey, one that had never been ridden on before, and to bring it to him. And when they brought it to him, they threw their cloaks on its back, and he got on it. And as he said, it says now, picking up in verse 36 of Luke 19, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice and with all the miracles which they had seen shouting, 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. The reason they told him to rebuke the disciples was because they knew exactly what was taking place. When they were saying that, they were crying that out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were crying out a messianic psalm. The people that were there were trying to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And up until this point in Jesus' ministry, as we've studied the Gospels, as you read through them, Jesus always told people, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell anybody about this. Keep this, because his time had not come. Today, his time has come. He does not stop it. Instead, he says, verse 40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, the New King James puts it, especially in this your day, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. But the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's why this day is so important. And that's why I take this, this time to go through this exercise. I've, to me, this is just one of those unbelievably fascinating things in the Bible. Right down to the day, God said the Messiah will come and be recognized on this day. That's what it says as we look in verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issue of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, they've recognized him now as the Messiah. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Right to the day. Not even rounding off. Right to the very day. And there's some other things, and again, not to spend all of the time in that, because I do want to get past verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 2, but this is important. And, and why, it was, again, so what for us, right? Because that's, that's history, and that's cool history. That lets us know that, okay, what we hold in our hand, guys, and this is why we don't have to apologize for anything. I had a long discussion this last week with a couple of people around, again, is it really important that we believe that God literally created the world in seven literal days 6,000 years ago. Can't we agree that it's possible that there was billions of years in there between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, this gap theory that people talk about? Is it really that big a deal? Yes, it's a big deal. Yes, it's a huge deal for a lot of reasons, but the big reason is if the enemy can get us to doubt verse 1 of Genesis, he can get us to doubt anything else that follows it. And, and that's why I love this. We don't have to apologize for this. There's stuff like this. If you remember Cyrus's decree, we, dec- we discussed that. God called Cyrus by name hundreds of years before he was born. And here we see this again. This is huge. But again, so what for today? Well, if we look at, we talked of those first 69 weeks until the Messiah, the Prince. But now what about, it said, verse 24, there's 70 weeks. There's still one more week. There's still one more period of seven to come. And right now, God's got his finger on the hold button, on the pause button. Because the 70th week will be kicked off as it tells us here that when this hymn will come, not the Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off. Jesus now died, resurrected, rose to heaven. But the people of the prince who is to come, speaking of the Antichrist, 
that is yet to come. Revelation deals with that very clearly. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Revelation tells us that the tribulation period that will take place is in the, in the covenant that is made there for one week, for seven years. The great tribulation that is poured out. And again, just a fascinating study as we've gone through Revelation. If you're interested in that, those are all available on the website. We've gone through the book of Revelation verse by verse. We go into great detail talking about all of that. But guys, this is coming. Great news for us. Before this happens, we'll fly away, just like we sang earlier. <laughs> as, as the church, we're not going to be a part of the tribulation. We will be raptured out before. If, 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 if we are alive at that time, I, you know, again, I believe, just personal opinion, there's a very, 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 very good chance the Antichrist is alive today. You look around, again, we look at, at Jesus talking about the things that we are to be aware of. Notice he said, you should know the day of your visitation. They should have known the day. We can't know the day. He told us nobody knows the day of his next coming. Nobody knows the day of the rapture of the church. That's going to come in the twinkling of an eye. That, we don't know that day, but we are to know the signs. We are to understand and, and be preparing and be ready. And guys, it does not take you don't have to be a news junkie to see the signs, to see everything that's going on around us. I mean, the, the, the earthquakes and the, and the hurricanes and the natural disasters. Jesus said they're going to be like birth pangs, which means they're going to happen more rapidly and more severely. I haven't gone through the birth process, but I've, I've witnessed it firsthand. And that's what happened. They got more severe and they, got, they happened more frequently. And we see that going on around us, wars and rumors of wars, any of that going on, those types of things. And one of the prophecies I, I love to point out being fulfilled all the time around us is how many of you heard of, have heard other people say, well, you, got, you Christians say that all the time. That's been going on forever, and you Christians keep saying that. Anybody ever heard that? That's a fulfillment of prophecy. Peter said they're going to say that. If anybody ever tells you that, you say, you're fulfilling prophecy, man. I, you yourself. Because the Bible says you were going to say that. Well, back to Nehemiah chapter 2. I, just, I guess I just one thought in closing. Nehemiah, when he got up that day and he's praying this prayer, he knew there was something special about that day. He had no idea that this day would be the, that trigger point of what is going on. But that day was going to happen whether Nehemiah went or not, if, if Nehemiah would have called in sick that day, God would have used someone else because that day was set. And guys, we never know. We never know what God has in store for this day, for tomorrow. And I, I, I love this almost as a model prayer. This should be us, you know, every day. Lord, make your servant successful today. Not successful in my agenda, but successful, Lord, for what you want to accomplish today. Make your servant successful as I reverently submit my life to you. I mean, I love that song that we were singing right at the end, that potter in the, in the hands of the potter, surrendering our lives to him. Make us successful today, Lord, for your purposes, for, for your, and then notice it says, grant us compassion before this man. This man, this, this cupbearer, he's this king that he is the cupbearer for. 
Notice it says, now I had been sad in his presence. Let's pick it up now and and look at verse 2. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would be your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. First of all, I think it's interesting to note that the king noticed something was different about Nehemiah this day. And that tells me a couple of things about Nehemiah. First, every other day, he's got joy in his heart. He loves what he's doing. He's, he's, he's serving the Lord while he's serving the king. This godless man, Artaxerxes, he's in a job that, again, if he had his druthers, he, would probably, he wants to be in Jerusalem. But God has him here, and he realizes God has him here. So it was, it was unusual for Nehemiah to be anything but in a good mood. Guys, that should define us as Christians. There shouldn't be, there should be very few things in our life that should ever be able to be noticeable on our face that something's wrong. I mean, it it should, when something happens, when something is seriously going on in our lives, people should look at us and go, something's wrong. What's the matter? Because we're so full of joy. We as Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. We should be the most full of joy on the planet because we're the only ones that have real hope. And yet so often, so often, we walk around with just, just like we've been sucking on sour pickles all day. Just like, guys, again, not that we don't face difficulties and trials in our life. We do. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, because you follow me, you're going to have problems. You're going to have difficulties in your life. Guys, we have Jesus living in us. We know. What is the worst thing that could possibly happen to us today? We get promoted. And Nehemiah understood that. I just, I, I just, I see that because the king noticed there was something. And bottom line for, for employers, if you're the boss, if you're, if you're a manager, if you're everything, I, think, I take something from the king here. Know your people. Take an interest in them. As a Christian, you should be concerned about them. So much so that you notice when something's wrong. Well, it tells us that he was very much afraid. Why would he be afraid? Well, if you're in the king's presence and you're in a bad mood, you have reason to be afraid because the king can have you killed for any reason whatsoever. And that was, that was usually kind of the deal. <laughs> Don't be in a bad mood around the king. So it, it, would, it concerned him. But I, I, I take this even, you know, as we look through this, I, I think as, as he's doing this, again, this healthy understanding, there's something special about this, and he's been praying about this, right, for four months, and all of a sudden, maybe it hit him, it's going down right now. I've been praying for this moment. I even prayed today, kind of knowing that today's the day. Give me compassion with the king. Give me grace with it. But here it is. Here's that moment. And I, I, I appreciate this in Nehemiah because remember, Nehemiah is writing this. If I'm writing this, 
Just letting you know, I'm not including that little phrase. I was very much afraid. I don't want to let, I don't want to let you guys know I was afraid. But I appreciate that he puts that in here. And we're going to see, I, I, I was drawn to Psalm 56 when I was looking at this. Verse 3 of Psalm 56 says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I think sometimes as Christians, and it's probably because you've heard from other Christians, when you're feeling fear, you're like, well, you must not have very good faith because we don't have a spirit of fear. You ever been quoted that verse when you're afraid of something? David said, when I am afraid. Not if, when. I will put my trust in you. Guys, that's the key. It's not running around trying to avoid fear. It's what do we do with the fear when we have it? We haven't been given a spirit of fear. We've been given a spirit of, of, of power and love and discipline. That is true. And we're to own that. that. That is something that we can stand on as Christians. But what do we do with fear? We give it to the Lord. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. He goes on to say in verse 4, in God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? It goes from the natural reaction because of fear. That's a natural reaction when we face things to a supernatural response. I will not be afraid because what's, God, God is with me. God's hand is on me. And I see that progression here even with him. I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Good thing to say. Why should my face not be sad when the city of my place, his father's tomb, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire? So he's, he's being pretty bold with this response. He's letting him know what's going on. And notice here the response. The king says, what would you request? And notice his response. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I how many agree with me that it wasn't a, hey, king, I got to go pray for a little bit. I'll be right back. Four months of prayer, diligent, devoted prayer, prepared Nehemiah for a four-second prayer. It was, again, God, this is all going down. I need you right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing somewhere along those lines, probably in Hebrew, though. I guess the point is, this wasn't his first prayer. He had been praying for four months. He had been seeking the Lord. He had been diligently seeking the Lord. And then when the time came, it was just that, that quick prayer response. Jesus, Jesus warns us against long, wordy prayers, right? He said, don't pray like that. Don't go on and on and on. He said, like the Gentiles do, thinking that they'll be heard for their many words. It's not our words that... that that get the response. It's not the length, but the strength, right? <laughs> and the strength isn't in the prayer or the prayer. It's in the one who hears the prayer. One of the shortest prayers that's recorded in the Bible got an immediate response from Jesus. When, when Peter's walking on the water and he looks around and he sees the storm raging and he starts to sink, three words, help me, Lord. Shortest prayer I can find recorded, and it says immediately Jesus responded. 
the one who moves mountains, the one who calms storms, the one almighty, all-powerful God. Again, remember back in verse 11, the prayer of your servant who delights to revere your name, that is the one. He's the one. He prayed, and his prayer was heard, as we're going to see, and God responded. Psalm, just another psalm to look at real quickly, Psalm 66. Again, David speaking. He says, come and hear all who fear God, verse 16, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. Basically, he's saying, I was crying out. I was worshiping, exalting God, praising him. Verse 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard. He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. His prayer was heard. His prayer was responded to, and he knew it. He said, he said but certainly God has heard. And I know, I know you're like me in that. I know you want to be certain that when we pray, God hears our prayer. And that, again, comes from a cultivated relationship with the Lord, a life of prayer. We think that we can just go on, you know, no prayer in our life, no, no reading the word, just disregarding, just living our own, and then all of a sudden get in the jam and then cry out, say, God, save me, and expect that prayer to be answered the same way. Isaiah said, behold, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy or deaf that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear or respond. Not that he can't, but he, but he won't if there's iniquity in our life. If we're living out and we're just dis disregarding God's word, not praying, not in his word, just living like that, and we get into a situation and we cry out to God just like any good parent, if we respond to that, he's gonna, we're going to think everything's okay. But silence in that, in those moments, will draw us back to him. And that's his, his heart and his desire for us. And the Bible tells us, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our, our, our relationship is severed by sin, but restored immediately through repentance. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed and, and all of that. And the prophet came to him, Nathan, and, and confronted him with him, his sin. I love that in 2 Samuel 12, when that happens, it tells us that David repents and Nathan tells him his sins are forgiven in one verse. It doesn't say, you know, you go away and you spend six months in, in deep mourning and, and all of that type of stuff. No, says you are forgiven because he truly repented. There's other verses, just a couple of things real quickly. Again, just those things that can hinder our prayers. James 4 tells us you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Again, that song that we sang tonight, just that God's perfect plan. We're praying in line with his plan. No doubt that was part of Nehemiah's at prayer as we looked last time. God, your will, what is it that you desire? Your city, your people. Nothing, Nehemiah didn't have a selfish word in his prayers. It was all about God and his plans. First Peter 3, 7, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, 
since she is a, a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's a direct st- statement in the Bible, direct verse to us as husbands and ladies. I know I'm not going to let you off that easy. It's applicable to you too. We're to honor each other in our, in our roles as husbands and wives in America. Peter specifically talking to husbands, live in an understanding way. We're to understand that our wives are, are a delicate gift from God. I love how he puts that. Someone weaker. That's not meaning, you know, this, this frail thing. But you're, you're different. And that's good. The way it's supposed to be. I like that. You're like fine china, ladies. And we're like coffee mugs. And <laughs> guys, we need to understand that. But ladies, you need to understand that too. And as we, as we go in that, work through that, biblically honor one another and honor God as we serve one another as husband and wife, our prayers won't be hindered because of that. If we don't, that can get in the way of our prayers with the Lord. Well, many other verses, but making, just making sure again, and that's where we got to go before the Lord because we can deceive ourselves. Just search me, Lord. You show me. Is there anything in my life that's displeasing to you? Anything that has gotten in the way of, the, of, of my communication with you, of my, of my walk with you? Show that to me. And we confess that. And again, immediately restored then into that relationship. So he prays. And he, and he prays and God answers and God moves. Look at this. This is, again, this is awesome. Verse 5. I said to the king, if it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, Send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Notice how he says that, too. And that's, I think, again, important. As if, you're, if you are an employee, if you are working for someone, if I've found favor with you, today's not the day to be worrying about that. Nehemiah knew that he found favor because he served the king with all that he had. He, he, got, he recognized that he didn't have any problem saying that. Would you have a problem going to your boss and saying, hey, if I found favor with you, maybe, kind of, sort of? He didn't have any problem with that. If I found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, and some commentators believe that now he's got a private just one-on-one meeting because normally the queen would not be present when there, were, when there was other general business going on um, for whatever that's worth. Probably he's got a, like a one-on-one now. But how long will your journey be and when you, will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. He went to the king. He was... He was afraid. He was worried. He was facing that natural fear as to what is going on now. But he prayed. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guarding his heart and his mind now, he goes forward with that request. And it says, the king says, well, my only question is, when are you coming back? And I can only wonder if it wasn't because I'm going to miss you, Nehemiah. I appreciate your service to me. And Maybe his wife, too, you know, oh, honey, come on, you know, give him a break. He's, you know, but don't let him stay forever. And look at verse 7. And I said to the king, since you're, since you're in a giving mood, if it please the king, 
Let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And since I'm asking, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates in the fortress that, that, which is by the temple and the wall of the city for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, note, because the good hand of my God was on me. Again, I remember back to Ezra, not too many weeks ago as we were going through that. In Ezra chapter 7, if you were with us in the study, verse 10, it tells us, Again, remember Ezra, he, he studied God's word, he practiced God's word, and he shared God's word. And in that study, we noticed that because of that, it told us five different times that God's hand was on Ezra to give him favor, to, to providentially guide him, to protect him, to provide for him. We saw that. And here we see it again here now, Nehemiah a man who loves the Lord, who is concerned about God, God's people, Jerusalem, praying to God, seeking God, following after God, being obedient as God leads him because of the good, the good hand of God was upon me. Then, verse 9, I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. So not only did he get what he asked, he got more than he asked. Verse 10, though, we're introduced to the villains in our story. And we're going to see these guys a lot in the chapters to come. When Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about it, they were very displeased. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Guys, we got to know that when God is on the move and he is purposeful in doing things and he is using his people to do things, the enemy's not going to just lay down. The enemies will react as God's people act. And we need to, we need to see that. And we'll look at that again in a moment because they... They rise up even here just as, as at the very beginning. Verse 11 says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Again, patience. We see this. He doesn't just jump right into it. He's there three days. He had prayed four months. He gets there now. He's three days. Again, as we've discussed so many times, waiting is so hard, but it's so important. Psalm 27 Verse 11 says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path. Teach me your way. We need to be taught. And that takes patience sometimes. The lessons that God brings us through, takes us through, takes time. We said, no doubt, God preparing Artaxerxes' heart, preparing Nehemiah for this. But now even as he gets here, lead me on the level path. Verse 11 says, because of my foes, as I mentioned, the foes have already shown their displeasure. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. We'll see that again in a moment here. And, much, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, where I'm coming to, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, 
wait for the Lord. He gets there. He receives word that it's not, not everybody's happy to see him. It says he waits on the Lord and he's patient. And we see that while he's patient also too, he's also taking a survey of things, counting the cost, if you would. And I arose in the night and I and a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which are broken down and its gates, which are consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. Verse 16 says, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Been there three days, and he hasn't told anybody what he's doing yet. He hasn't told anybody why he's there. He's praying. He's surveying the situation. And again, I think something that challenges me in all of this is the patience of Nehemiah, because I'm, I, patience isn't one of my long suits. I want to jump right in. I want to get right going. And there have been oftentimes where the Lord will lay something on my heart, and I'm in a big hurry to tell other people. And sometimes when I do that, I don't get the reaction like I think I'm going to get. And I wonder if it's not because that was for me now, for me to pray for a little bit more, for me to maybe survey the situation a little bit, and wait for God's timing. Wait for God to show when it is that I'm supposed to move forward in that. And I just share that with you. If, you've, if the Lord is laying something on your heart, I'm not saying don't tell anybody. But seek him in that. Verse 17 says, Then I said to them, after, after all of this, and after the Lord had fully prepared his heart, then I said to them, See, you see the bad situation we are in that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. He finally comes to the point now where he's going to share this with the, the people, that this is what we're going to do. This is what God has laid on my heart. And again, as, as he comes, he just lays it all out there. And then it tells me in verse 18, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. He just told them what God had been doing. And when they heard that, they were like, man, I... I'm on board. I'm with that. Yes, let's go forward. And that, to me, is a big deal because all of these years, it hadn't been done. It's just taken one man with the heart after God who prayed, who sought the Lord, and was obedient to step out, and then given all credit to God, just sharing his story about what, what God did what God has done in his life up to this point. And the rest were like, wow, I want to be involved in that. 
And I make, a, I make a point of that because I think sometimes each one of us, we can come to a situation where we could say, well, how could God use me? I mean, who am I? I I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I'm nobody special. I don't have any, anything in particular. But guys, we are in, again, unbelievably unique time. I believe that it's not going to be long until we're out of here. But we have a lot of work to do until that time comes. And God wants to use us. God will use you if you want to be used. And if you just simply say, God, I don't know what you want to do with me, but here's my life. You do what you want to do. I don't have time to tell you my whole testimony, but the simple fact of the matter was I'm sitting in my hot tub store as I'm going out of business saying, Lord, I am a failed businessman. I got nothing to offer you, but whatever you got, take it. And 10 years later, here I am. This has nothing to do with me. My, my testimony has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the Lord Jesus. And I tell you that, and I, I go back to the point too. I just, I, verse 18 to me, I, I love this. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. Guys, that's the secret. Just tell people what God has done in your life, what God has done for you. Sometimes we think, well, I can't be used because I don't know this. I don't know that. I could never do, I could never get up in front and talk to people. I could, don't worry about any of that. Just use the audience God gives you and tell them what God has done for you. Jesus healed a man that was so full of demons, they called, they called him legion because there were so many demons in him. And they, Jesus cast out the demons into the herd of swine. They ran down, drowned themselves in the Sea of Galilee. The man wanted to go with Jesus. He said, take me with you. And to probably everybody's shock, Jesus said, no. No, you go back to your city, your town, the place where everybody thinks you're a total whack job, and you tell them what I did for you. I got to think the disciples were sitting there going, Jesus, he doesn't have any training. He's got he's to go through evangelism explosion at least. You're just going to send him back? And Jesus sends him back. And that's all he did. Just told him what Jesus did. He didn't know anything else. He just said, he just told him what Jesus did. And his ministry was so successful that the next time Jesus came back over, it says multitudes came out to see this Jesus that they were hearing about. So the enemy is going to try to convince you that you, you can't do anything. You don't know enough. You're not smart enough. You're not old enough. You're too old. You're, you know, whatever it might be. But if you'll simply let God use you, first of all, be obedient to, to God's calling on you. Just whatever it is, God, you can expect two things. First of all, you can expect God's hand on you. If you are in his word, you are praying, you are obedient, and following his direction, you can expect God's hand on your life. But secondly, you can also expect the enemy's hand against you. We see that in verse 19. But 
when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab, they added somebody, heard it, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we will serve. We, we are his servants and will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Expect, expect the enemy to come against you. Expect the enemy to, to come with, with these. Again, notice these are just words. They're mocking them. What is this thing you are doing? And that's what the enemy is going to do to you. I guarantee it. You're going to step out. You're going to say, okay, Lord, I, I, I hear this. I get it. I believe it. We're in the last times. I, in the end times, you want to use me. Use me however you want. He's going to open up doors. He's going to open up opportunities. As you step out in faith, the enemy is going to come mocking. He's going to say, what is this thing you are doing? You. Again, you're too young. You're too old. You don't know enough. You did this. You did that. Oh, if they only knew this about you. As a matter of fact, that's a good thing to tell them. Tell them that about you and that Jesus forgave you and that his blood covered all of your sin and he can cover all of their sin too. Take that weapon right out of their hand and stick them in the eye with it. <laughs> but the enemy's going to come again. Know it. We are out of time, but one last thing. Notice his response. He does not, again, get, he doesn't get in the flesh. Are you rebelling against the king? Just straight up, Brett would have said, no, I'm not rebelling against the king. As a matter of fact, let me show you a couple of letters I got. And not only that, he did this and he did this. And by the way, I was hanging out with the first lady. And she even gave me her blessing to come. And I'd have just been laying it on boom, ba -doom, ba -doom, but this is not the book of Brett, thank God. It's the book of Nehemiah. And he said, the God of heaven will give us success. The enemy comes against you. Don't listen. Don't pay any attention. Just say, you know what? The hand of God Almighty is on, on me, and he will give me success. And by the way, he defines success, remember? We don't. The enemy will say, you call that success? You call that success? You call, again, we're not called to be successful in our eyes. We are called to be obedient in his eyes. That is what we are called to do. And as we do that, again, expect his hand, expect this, and we're just getting started into Nehemiah, and we're just getting started with Sanballat and Tobiah as well. But uh, read ahead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can fully and completely trust your word. Uh, this exercise we went through tonight is not, is not, is not for nothing, Lord. It's a beautiful picture of the fact that, that you are that precise, that you are that sovereign. And Lord, we see too, as we just look at the world around us, we can't help but know that, that you're coming soon. And Lord, as as we say, come Lord Jesus. But Lord, we know that you have work for us to do in the time that we have left here. But Lord, if there's anything in our lives that would hinder that work, anything that would be in the way of you using us, Lord, would you show that to us now? 
whether it's, whether it's sin or even if it's something that's not, not sin, but is, it could be a barrier for us to follow exactly what it is that you would have for us. Lord, show that to us. And we, we put that down in front of you now. We put that in the fr- at the foot of the cross. If it's sin, Lord, we confess it and we repent of it. We turn to you and know that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we do. Lord, use us in this time to make your name famous, to bring about your perfect purposes and plans. Lord, as the enemy comes against us, Lord, we know we, can, we shouldn't be surprised. As a matter of fact, that should encourage us, knowing that, that we are in your will if the enemy is, is coming against us, Lord. We pray for strength. We pray for, for wisdom, your wisdom. Have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you this weekend.